Apartheid translates to the word separateness. Apartheid is actually an Afrikaner's word. It was a system of institutionalized racial suppression, oppression, segregation that existed in South Africa and Southwest Africa, which is now Namibia. In theory, the system existed from about 1948 until 1994. The system denied non-white South Africans certain rights, such as the right to vote, while allowing white minorities the right to do so themselves. And I say 1948, but really it goes a little bit further back than that, but I'll get to it. So apartheid was characterized by an authoritarian political culture based on something called Baskup, bosshood or boss ship, which ensured that South Africa was dominated politically, socially, and economically by the country's minority white population. According to this particular system of social stratification, these white citizens had the highest status, followed by Indians, then coloreds, then black Africans. But going back to dates, I would go back to the year 1806. Under the 1806 Cape Articles of Capitulation, the new British colonial rulers, that, by the way, had fought the former Dutch rulers, were required to respect previous legislation enacted under Roman Dutch law. This then led to a separation of the law in South Africa between English common law and a high degree of legislative autonomy thus giving the governors and assemblies that govern the legal process in the various colonies of South Africa some freedom, in air quotes, to do what they wanted. The Pupikoi, who were the Hottenods, the i.e. the nomadic indigenous population that populated South Africa or the region of South Africa, moving, were moving around the country for any purpose would have to carry passes. This was confirmed by the British colonial government in 1809, which decreed that if a Kolikoi were to move, they would need a pass from their master or a local official. Now, audience number 49 of 1828 decreed that prospective black immigrants were to be granted passes for the sole purpose of seeking work. These passes were to be issued for coloreds and Kloikoi, but not for other Africans who were still forced to carry passes. The United Kingdom's Slavery Abolition Act of 1833 abolished slavery throughout the British Empire and overrode the Cape Articles of Capitulation. To comply with the Act, the South African legislation was expanded to include an ordinance, Ordinance 1, in 1835, that effectively changed the status of slaves to laborers or indentured laborers. This was followed by Ordinance Number 3 in 1848, which introduced an indenture system for the Zoha peoples that was a little different from slavery. The various South African colonies passed legislation throughout the rest of the 19th century to limit the freedom of unskilled workers, to increase the restrictions on indentured workers, and to regulate the relations between the races. And I'll come to that in a bit. In the Cape Colony, which previously had a liberal, in air quotes, and multiracial constitution, and a system of franchise open to all men of all races, the Franchise and Ballot Act of 1892 raised the property franchise qualification 
it added an educational element, thus disenfranchised, disenfranchising a disproportionate number of the Cape's non-white voters. And then the Glenn Gray Act of 1894, instigated by the government of then Prime Minister Cecil Rhodes, limited the amount of land Africans could hold. Similarly, over in Natal, the Natal Legislative Assembly Bill of 1894 deprived Indians of the right to vote in South Africa. That was followed in 1896, where the South African Republic brought in two pass laws requiring Africans to carry a badge. Only those employed by a master were permitted to remain on their land and those entering a labor district needed a special pass. In 1905, the General Pass Regulations Act denied blacks the vote and limited them to fixed areas. Then in 1906, the Asiatic Registration Act of the Transvaal Colony required all Indians to carry and register passes. The latter was then repealed by the British government, but then reenacted again in 1908. In 1910, the Union of South Africa, as it was known then, was created as a self-governing dominion. The term dominion was used to refer to one of several self-governing nations of the British Empire, i.e. dominion status. This was accorded initially also to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Newfoundland, and then South Africa, oh, and also the Irish Free State. The Union of South Africa came to existence on the 31st of May 1910 with the unification of the Cape, the Natal, the Transvaal, and the Orange River colonies. It included the territories that were formerly part of the South African Republic and the Orange Free State. At this point, the Dominion of South Africa began to legislate to disenfranchise the native population in favour of the settlers with a laundry list of laws and regulation. The Native Land Act of 1913 prevented blacks, except those in the Cape, from buying land outside the reserves. Then, the Natives in Urban Areas Bill of 1918 was designed to force black people into locations. The Urban Areas Act of 1923 introduced residential segregation and provided cheap labor for industry led by white people. The Color Bar Act of 1926 prevented black mine workers from practicing skilled trades. The Native Administration Act of 1927 made the British Crown, rather than the paramount chiefs, the supreme head over all African affairs. The Native Land and Trust Act of 1936 complemented the 1913 Native Land Act and in the same year, the Representation of Natives Act removed previous black voters from the Cape voters' role and allowed them to elect three whites to Parliament only. One of the first pieces of segregation legislation enacted by Jan Smuts' United Party government was the Asiatic Land Tenure Bill of 1946, which banned land sales to Indians and Indian-descended South Africans. The Native Laws Commission, commonly known as the Fagan Commission, was appointed by the South African government in 1946 to investigate changes to the system of segregation. The Commission's main recommendation was that influx control of African people to urban areas should be relaxed. This, in turn, would increase the flow of labour and prevent the problem of migrant labour living in distant rural areas. Another recommendation was the creation of a stabilised population of African workers within urban areas to create a reliable workforce for business as well as increased consumer bases for retailers. The Sauer Commission was created in 1947 largely in response to the Fagan Commission. It generally favoured even stricter segregation laws. The Sao Commission 
was concerned with the problem of controlling the influx of African people into urban areas. White workers, traders, and merchants were concerned that this would represent a threat to the jobs, their jobs, and businesses, particularly since African workers would work in semi-skilled positions for a lower wage than white workers. Businesses demanded racially segregated trading zones in order to protect their businesses from competition. Numerous groups influenced his policy of total apartheid, including the South African Bureau of Race Affairs or the notorious SABRA, S-A-B-R-A. Ultimately, the Sauer Commission did not enforce the total segregation to the extent originally envisioned. Rather, it resulted in the immediate implementation of practical apartheid rather than total apartheid, which allowed some African people to enter and work in urban areas with the complete implementation of total apartheid envisioned as a future goal. The recommendations made by the Sauer Commission were still more restrictive than those made by the Fagan Commission. The rapid economic development of World War II attracted black migrant workers in large numbers to chief industrial centers where they were compensated for the wartime shortage of white labor. However, this escalated rate of black urbanization went unrecognized by the South African government that failed to accommodate the influx and parallel expansion in housing and social services. Overcrowding, increasing crime rates, and disillusionment resulted. Urban blacks came to support a new generation of leaders, influenced by the principles of self-determination and popular freedoms enshrined in such statements as the Atlantic Charter. Many whites reacted negatively to the changes, allowing the National Party to convince a large segment of the voting bloc that the impotence of the United Party in in curtailing the evolving position of non-whites indicated that the organization had fallen under the influence of Western liberals. Many Afrikaners, white South Africans, chiefly Dutch descent, but with early infusions of German and French Huguenots who were also assimilated into this group, resented what they perceived as disempowerment by an underpaid black workforce and the superior economic power and prosperity of white English speakers. The National Party's election platform stressed that apartheid would preserve a market for white employment in which non-whites could not compete. When the National Party came to power in 1948, there were fractional differences in the party about the implementation of systematic racial segregation. The Baskap faction, which was the dominant faction in the National Party and the state institutions, favored systematic segregation, but also favored the participation of black Africans in the economy with black labor controlled to advance economic gains of the Afrikaners. A second faction were the purists, who believed in vertical segregation in which blacks and whites would be entirely separated with blacks living in native reserves with separate political and economic structures that they believed would entail severe short-term pain but would lead to independence of white South Africa from black labor in the long term. In addition to some of the legislation I mentioned, here's some more. But first, a step back. National party leaders argued that South Africa did not compromise a single nation but was made up of four distinct racial groups, whites, blacks, coloreds, and Indians. Okay, so the state passed laws that paved the way for an equal grand apartheid, which was centered on separating races on a large scale by compelling people to live in separate places defined by race itself. This strategy was in part adopted from leftover British rule that separated different racial groups after they took control of the Boer republics back in the Anglo-Boer War, 
This created the Black-only townships or locations where Blacks were relocated to their own towns. As the National Party Government Minister of Native Affairs from 1950, Hendrik Wurwood, had a significant role in this, he crafted laws such as leading him to being regarded as the architect of apartheid. In addition, petty apartheid laws were also passed. The first grand apartheid law was the Population Registration Act of 1950, which formalized racial classification and introduced an identity card for all persons over the age of 18, specifying their racial group. Official teams or boards were established to come to a conclusion on those people whose race was unclear. Unsurprisingly, this caused difficulty, especially for colored people, separating their families when members were allocated different races. The second grand apartheid law was the Group Areas Act of 1950. Until then, most settlements had been people of different races living side by side. This act put an end to diverse areas and determined where one lived according to race. Each race was allocated its own area, which was used in later years as a bias of forced removal. As the third law of Grand Apartheid was the Prevention of Illegal Squatting Act of 1951, allowing the government to demolish black shantytown slums and forced white employers to pay for the construction of housing for those black workers who were permitted to reside in cities otherwise reserved for whites. In Act Number 4 would be the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act of 1949, prohibited marriage between persons of different races. In Act Number 5, the Immortality Act of 1950 made sexual relations with a person of a different race a criminal offence. Law number six was that under the Reservation of Separate Amenities Act of 1953, municipal grounds could be reserved for a particular race, creating, amongst other things, separate beaches, buses, hospitals, schools, and universities. Signboards, such as whites only, applied to public areas, even including park benches. Black South Africans were provided with services greatly inferior to those of whites, and to a lesser extent, those of Indian and colored peoples. At number seven, there were laws that had the aim of suppressing resistance, especially armed resistance to apartheid. Suppression of Communism Act of 1950 banned any party subscribing to communism. The Bantu Authorities Act of 1951 is our eighth law, where it created separate government structures for blacks and whites and was the first piece of legislation to support the government's plan to separate development in the Bantustans. For a ninth law, they had the Promotion of Black Self-Government Act of 1959, entrenched the National Party policy of nominally independent homelands for blacks. So-called self-governing Bantu units were proposed and would have developed administrative powers of their own, but with the promise later of autonomy and self-government. It also abolished the seats of white representatives of black South Africans and removed the roles the few blacks still had qualified to vote. And finally, for the 10th law, the Black Homeland Citizenship Act of 1970 marked a new phase in the Bantustan strategy. It changed the status of Blacks to citizens of one of the 10 autonomous territories. The aim was to ensure a demographic majority of white people within South Africa by having all 10 Bantustans achieve full independence. 
as you may be able to tell from these 10 laws, they were passed gradually between 1950 and 1970, increasingly bringing segregation further and further into the system. During the 1960s, 1970s, and early 1980s, the government implemented a policy of resettlement to force people to move to their designated group areas. Millions of people were forced to relocate. These removals included people relocating due to slum clearance programs, labor tents on white-owned farms, the inhabitants of so-called black spots, i.e. black-owned land surrounded by white farms, the families of workers living in townships close to the home rents were moved, and surplus people from urban areas, including thousands of people from the Western Cape, which declared a colored labor preference area, were also moved to the Tansiki and Siski homelands. The best publicized forced removals of the 1950s occurred in Johannesburg when 60,000 people, 60,000 people were moved to the new township of Soweto, and that was a short form for southwestern townships. Black people were not allowed to run businesses or professional practices in designated areas such as white South Africa, unless they had a permit, such being granted only very exceptionally. They were required to move to the black homelands and set up businesses and practices there. Trains, hospitals, and ambulances were also segregated. Because of the smaller number of white patients and the fact that white doctors preferred to work with white hospitals, conditions in white hospitals were much better than those often overcrowded, understaffed, significantly underfunded black hospitals. Residential areas were segregated and blacks were allowed to live in white areas only if employed as a servant and even then only in servant quarters. Black people were excluded from working in white areas unless they had a pass. Each black homeland controlled its own education, health, and police systems. Blacks were not allowed to buy hard liquor. They were able to buy only state-produced poor-quality beer. Public beaches, swimming pools, some pedestrian beaches, drive-in cinemas, parking spaces, graveyards, parks, and public toilets were segregated. Cinemas and theaters in white areas were not allowed to admit blacks. There were practically no cinemas in black areas. Most restaurants and hotels in white areas were not allowed to admit blacks except as staff. Blacks were prohibited from attending white churches under Church's Native Laws Amendment Act in 1957, but this was never rigidly enforced and churches were one of the few places races could mix without interference of the law. Education was segregated by the 1953 Bantu Education Act, which created a separate system of education for black South African students and was designed to prepare black people for lives as a laboring class. In 1959, separate universities were created for black, colored, and Indian people. Existing universities were not permitted to enroll new black students. Defining its Asian population, a minority that did not appear to belong to any of the initial three designated non-white groups, was a constant dilemma for the apartheid regime. The classification of honorary white, a term which would be ambiguously used throughout apartheid, was granted to immigrants from Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, countries with which South Africa maintained diplomatic and economic relations, and then to their descendants. Indian South Africans during apartheid were classified many ranges of categories from Asian to black to colored, and even the mono-ethnic category of Indian, 
but never as white, having been considered non-white throughout South Africa's history. The group faced severe discrimination during the apartheid government and was subject to numerous racialist policies. Chinese South Africans, who were descendants of migrant workers who came to work in gold mines around Johannesburg in the late 19th century, were initially either classified as colored or other Asian and were subject to numerous forms of discrimination and restriction. It was not until 1984 that South African Chinese increased to about 10,000 people were given the same official rights as the Japanese to be treated as whites in terms of the Group Areas Act, although they still faced discrimination and did not receive all the benefits or rights of their newly obtained honorary white status, such as voting. Indonesians arrived at the Cape of Good Hope as slaves until the abolishment of slavery during the 19th century. They were primarily Muslim, were allowed religious freedom, and formed their own ethnic group or community known as Cape Malays. They were classified as part of the coloured group. This was the same for South Africans of Malaysian descent, who were also classified as part of the coloured group, and thus considered non-white. South Africans of Filipino descent were classified as black due to historical outlooks on Filipinos by white South Africans, and many of them lived in Bantu stands. The Lebanese population was somewhat of an anomaly during the apartheid era. Lebanese immigration to South Africa was chiefly Christian, and the group was originally classified as non-white. However, a court case in 1913 ruled that because the Lebanese and Syrians originated from Canaan, i.e. the birthplace of Christianity and Judaism, they could not be discriminated against by race laws, which targeted non-believers and thus were classified as white. But how can a small minority of people control a much bigger group? Would you not assume that there would be resistance? Well, of course there was resistance. In 1949, the youth wing of the African National Congress, the ANC, took control of the organization and started advocating a radical black nationalist program. The new young leaders proposed that white authority could only be overthrown through mass campaigns. In 1950, that philosophy saw the launch of the Program of Action, a series of strikes, boycotts, and civil disobedience actions that led to occasional violent clashes with the authorities. In 1959, a group of disenchanted ANC members formed the Pan-Africanist Congress, or the PAC, which organized a demonstration against the passbooks on the 21st of March, 1960. One of those protests was held in the township of Shaperville, where 69 people were killed by police in the infamous Shaperville Massacre. In the wake of the Shaperville Massacre, the government declared a state of emergency. More than 100, more than 18,000 people were arrested, including leaders of the ANC and PAC, and both organizations were then banned. The resistance went underground, with some leaders in exile abroad and others engaged in campaigns of domestic sabotage and terrorism at home. In May 1961, before the declaration of South Africa as a republic, an assembly representing the banned ANC called for negotiations between the members of the different ethnic groupings threatening demonstrations and strikes during the inauguration of the Republic if their calls were ignored. When the government overlooked the strikers, by the way, among the strikers was a 42-year-old man called Nelson Mandela, these strikers carried out their threats. The government counted swiftly by giving police the authority to arrest people for up to 12 days and detain many of the strike leaders amid numerous cases of police brutality. Defeated, the protesters called off their strike. 
the ANC then chose to launch an armed struggle through a newly formed military wing. The, and I'm going to butcher this, Upanto We Suiz, or MK, which would perform acts of sabotage on tactical state structures. Its first sabotage plans were carried out on the 16th of December, 1961. In the 1970s, the Black Consciousness Movement, or BCM, was created by the tertiary students influenced by the Black Power Movement within the U.S. The BCM endorsed Black pride and African customs and did much to alter the feelings of inadequacy instilled among Black people by the apartheid system. The leader of the movement, Steve Biko, was taken into custody on the 18th of August 1977 and was beaten to death in detention. In 1976, secondary students in Soweto took to the streets in the Soweto uprising to protest against the imposition of Afrikaners as the only language of instruction. On the 16th of June, police opened fire on students protesting peacefully. According to official reports, 23 people were killed, but the number of people who died is usually given at 176, with estimates of up to 700. In the following years, several student organizations were formed to protest against apartheid and these organizations were central to urban school boycotts in 1980 and 1983 and rural boycotts in 1985 and 1986. In parallel with student protests, labor unions started to protest action in 1973 and 1974. After 1976, unions and workers are considered to have played an important role in the struggle against apartheid, filling the gap left by banning of political parties. In 1979, black trade unions were legalized and could engage in collective bargaining through strikes, although strikes were actually still legal. In 1983, the anti-apartheid leaders were determined to create a united front and called it the United Democratic Front or the UDF in order to coordinate anti-apartheid activism inside South Africa. The first presidents of the UDF were Archie Grongde, Oscar Mepdav and Albertina Sulusu. Patrons were Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Dr. Alan Bozak, Helen Joseph, and Nelson Mandela. Basing this platform on abolishing apartheid and creating a non-racial democratic South Africa, the UDF provided a legal way for domestic human rights groups and individuals of all races to organize demonstrations and campaign against apartheid inside the country. Although the majority of whites supported apartheid, some 20% did not. Parliamentary opposition was galvanized by Helen Sussman, Colin Elgin, and Harry Schwartz, who formed the Progressive Federal Party. Extra-parliamentary resistance was largely centered in the South African Communist Party and women's organization known as the Black Sash. F.W.D. Clerk had already experienced political success as a result of the power base he had built in the Transvaal. During this time, De Klerk served as chairman to the Provisional National Party, which was in favor of the apartheid regime. The transition of De Klerk's ideology regarding apartheid is seen clearly in his opening address to Parliament on 2nd February 1990. After De Klerk announced that he would repeal discriminatory laws and lift the 30-year ban on leading anti-apartheid groups, such as the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, and the South African Communist Party, and the United Democratic Front. The Land Act was also brought to an end. F.W.D. Clerk also made his first public commitment to release Nelson Mandela to return to press freedom and to suspend the death penalty. 
media restrictions were lifted and political prisoners who were not guilty of common law crimes were released. Namibia became independent of South Africa on the 21st of March, 1990. On the 11th of February, 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from Victor Vesta prison after more than 27 years behind bars. Apartheid was dismantled in a series of negotiations from 1990 to 1991, resulting in a transnational period which resulted in the country's 1994 general election, the first in South Africa held with universal suffrage. In 1990, negotiations were earnestly begun, with two meetings between the government and the ANC. The purpose of the negotiations was to pave the way for talks towards a peaceful transition towards majority rule. These meetings were successful in laying down the preconditions for negotiations. Despite the considerable tension still abounding within the country, apartheid legislation was abolished in 1991. There were fears that the change of power would be violent. To avoid this, it was essential that a peaceful resolution between all parties be reached. In December 1991, the Convention for a Democratic South Africa, or CODESA, began negotiations on the formation of a multiracial transitional government and a new constitution extending political rights to all groups. The CODESA adopted a declaration of intent and committed itself to an undivided South Africa. Reforms and negotiations to end apartheid led to a backlash among the right-wing white opposition, leading to the Conservative Party winning a number of by-elections against National Party candidates. De Klerk responded by calling a whites-only referendum in March 1992 to decide whether the negotiation should continue. 68% voted in favour and the victory instilled in De Klerk and the government a lot more confidence. Persistent violence added to the tension during the negotiations. This was due mostly to the intense rivalry between the Inkata Freedom Party and the ANC, and the eruption of some traditional tribal and local rivalries between the Zulu and the Zoha historical tribal affinities, especially in the southern Natal provinces. Although Mandela and Butsisi met to settle their differences, they could not stem the violence. One of the worst cases of ANC-IFP violence was the Bonitong Massacre of 17th June, 1992, when 200 IFP militants attacked the Guntang township of Portong, killing 45. Right-wing violence also added to the hostilities of this period. The assassination of Chris Harney on the 10th of April 1993 threatened to plunge the country into chaos. Harney, the popular general secretary of the South African Communist Party, was assassinated in 1993 in Dawn Park in Johannesburg. An anti-communist Polish refugee killed him. He had closed links to white nationalist Africana movements, or the AWB. In addition to the continuing black-on-black violence, there were a number of attacks on white civilians. In 1993, the Clerk and Mandela were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their work for the peaceful termination of the apartheid regime and for laying the foundations for a new democratic South Africa. Violence, however, persisted right up to the 1994 general election. Two days before the election, a car bomb exploded in Johannesburg, killing nine people. The election was still held. It was held on the 27th of April, 1994, and went off peacefully throughout the country, as around 20 million South Africans cast their vote. The ANC won 62% of the vote, less than 66% that would have allowed it to rewrite the constitution. 252 of the 400 seats went to members of the ANC. The NP captured most of the white and colored votes, and became the official opposition party. 
as well as deciding the national government, the election decided the provincial governments, and the ANC won in seven of the nine provinces, with the NP winning the Western Cape and the IFP in Natal. On the 10th of May 1994, Mandela was sworn in as the new president of South Africa. The government of national unity was established, its cabinet made up of 12 ANC representatives, six from the NP and three from the IFP. Thabo, Makibi and the clerk were made deputy presidents. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the history of apartheid in South Africa and by extension, Namibia. All the best for now. Catch you soon. Thank you.